I'm going to read verses 1 to 30. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even great, greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Good morning. 
Let me add my uh, welcome to those who are here visiting today. It's great to have you here with us. My name is Philip, one of the regulars here at Abbotsford, and I'll be um, working through the verses that were just read to us. Um, have you uh, ever had those moments in life when your greatest need intersected with the greatest person who can respond to that need? Um, the answer is, of course you have, because every uh, infant goes through that experience. Uh, at eight days, the child's greatest need is uh, uh, warmth and food, and the mother is given to that child, that infant, to provide those things uh, for that infant. And the, so the greatest need that baby faces is met by the greatest person in their life. What about an eight-year-old? Well, I suppose it isn't as clear, but I suspect a boy or girl's greatest need may be the strength and security that a father can provide for them. Uh, what about an 18-year-old? Well, who knows what the greatest need of an 18-year-old really is. Um, I imagine that unlike the baby or even the 8-year-old, it, it becomes more complex, it becomes more varied, it depends on the context and the particular situation the person finds himself in. And if we can't identify what a person's greatest need is, well, how can we point to a person who can address, who can meet that greatest need? So with that question in mind, I did a, a quick search in my browser. What is our greatest need? What are the basic human needs? And I found um, immediately that Google put up uh, a box that said the seven greatest human needs. And so here they are. Uh, number one, certainty, comfort. Number two, uncertainty, variety. Number three, these are the, the greatest human needs. Number three, significance. Number four, love and connection. Number five, growth. Number six, contribution. The need to be able to contribute something to those around us. Um, the seven basic human needs, Google gave me a list of six. Um, so I clicked on the link, and yes, it ends with six as the seven basic human needs. What are we to make of that? Well, I guess there's a mystery there. So what I want to do is look at these verses with that question in mind. What is our greatest need, and who can meet that greatest need in our life? And you can anticipate the answer already, I'm sure. Um, in uh, the first point I want to make, we see a, a lame man, and Jesus heals a lame man, and in so doing, he proves his authority over life itself. In healing a lame man, Jesus proves his authority over life itself. Now, uh, it wasn't too long ago we looked at John 4 together. There Jesus brought salvation to a woman in Samaria. Uh, she was an isolated figure who needed only what Jesus could offer to her, or who needed what Jesus alone could offer to her. Now it's a little while later and we find Jesus in Jerusalem, and he's moving through a crowd. But somewhere in this crowd... He identifies and relates to an equally isolated figure. A man who, like that woman, had great need. A man who maybe is a bit like you in terms of isolation or need. Or maybe even like you in terms of needing to deal with sin in his life. The one thing the woman in Samaria and the man in Jerusalem had in common, and which they share with everyone in the room, is this. All of us will stand before a divine judge one day and be called to give an account. To be ready for that day, there are a few things we need to know. One of the main ones is, is this. Well, who is Jesus? In this passage, Jesus provides the information that they're going to need about him, maybe even a bit about ourselves, and something about the nature of that judgment day. 
So I want to look at this passage with with that in mind. So as I read into this passage, um, you know, I'm confronted with a man who's been an invalid, it says, for 38 years. Now, I have to confess that growing up in a church, um, there aren't many negatives in that experience, but one of them was that I encountered things that I just was not in a position to receive, to understand. Uh, Sometimes it was, well, bigger, strange words, words that people use in churches that nobody outside churches would use. But sometimes it was even the most basic concepts. For example, in chapter 4, you know, you arrive at Sunday school and you're going to look at uh, John chapter 4. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Where? Samaria. you, You mean you don't know? No, he had to go to Samaria. Samaria. Okay. And now we're going to talk about a woman of Samaria. Well, that's just rude. And then the next week, of course, you move from John chapter 4 to John chapter 5. And here's this man who, you know, he's, he's been an invalid for 38 years. And we're told that he's beside a pool. And I can't relate to any of this stuff because to me, what's better than being beside a pool in a nice sunny spot on a nice day? And, well, no, actually that's not the sort of pool that we've got on view here. What we're looking at is a particular place in Jerusalem that um, was not far from the temple area, so there's, there's access to water. It's not a swimming pool. He's not in a Speedo having a nice day in the sun. He's an invalid who can't participate in life, and he's by this pool in the hope that something good of the temple will, in a sense, flow in his direction and bring something useful into his life. Um, I didn't get any of that when I was a child. And also, you, you say 38 years. If they had said he was stuck by the pool for three days... I would have got a sense of that. That would have been, you know, a pretty intense experience. But, well, it doesn't say three days. And it doesn't even say three weeks. It says 38 years. And when you're seven years old, that means nothing. That's not just a lifetime. That was older than my dad. How am I supposed to get my head around 38 years of being stuck, not by a swimming pool, but his life being defined by this level of misery and distress? And furthermore, he's a paralytic. And this didn't help me at all because, well, my grandfather was a paralytic. Um, He had been a big, strong, robust man who um, was able to do um, all sorts of things until he hit um, sometime in his 40s when a paralysis crept over him. So one side of his body was, in a sense, undone by that. And he was, from the time I met him, confined to a wheelchair. For me, well, I was just incredibly insensitive as a six or seven year old responding to this. I suppose I assumed that everybody in that condition had someone like my grandmother to, well, to look after them. But this man doesn't have anybody to take care of him. Furthermore, my brothers and I thought, well, that wheelchair thing was pretty cool. And when we'd say something like, uh, yeah, I wish I had a wheelchair, and our parents said, no, you don't, we, we had no idea what they were talking about. So how are we supposed to, and this is what I'm fumbling toward here, how are we supposed to get our heads around somebody who has been in this condition for 38 years? He isn't enslaved. He is a slave. He doesn't have an owner. He doesn't have a government oppressing him. His own nature has become his enemy. And here he is. 
consigned to sit by this pool alone and hope for something that he's never going to have. And as we go through, the translation consistently said he's an invalid. I think there's a a term uh, that that contains a bit more irony than that. He's by a pool, by this large body of water. But the term that John uses is he's withered. He's a man who's withered. I don't know if you remember that in John chapter 2, there was that stuff about water and wine. In John chapter 3, Jesus says you have to be born of water. In John chapter 4, well, again, the the woman is uh, spoken to about the water. In John chapter 5, here, beside this huge amount of water is a man who is withered. He can't get to the water. What he needs, it's obvious, isn't it? He needs water that can come to him. He needs living water that can reach out to him in his condition and refresh him, restore him, uh, work on his parched soul. And, well, that's what Jesus does. And so Jesus has a conversation with him. And in that conversation, in this man's fragmented life, in this man's fragmented world, words are spoken to him that allow him to get up and to go on his way. He has met with Jesus, or better yet, Jesus has met with him, and he is restored. Well, uh, I'm trying to go very quickly past the story so I can get to what this says about Jesus. Um, The crowd has its response. In verse 15, Jesus, uh, we learn that the man goes away and he tells the Jewish leaders, the authorities, that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's his response to the situation. This man, uh, in a sense, released me from my 38 years of slavery, and he runs off and tells the authorities that it was this man who does it. Well, because Jesus was doing these things, and John has withheld this in verse 16 for just a moment, he was doing it on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders begin to persecute him. He's just set a man free. He's given life to this man. He's released him from slavery, and the Jewish leaders begin to persecute him. And so Jesus now, on trial, in his defense says, verse 17, My father is always at work to this day, and I too am working. Like father, like son. And so, in answering the charges, well... The crowd, in bringing their charges, prove that they don't know who God is, don't they? Jesus proves who he is in healing this man, but the crowd proves that they don't know who God is. They think they can please God. They think they can even defend his honor. But to accuse Jesus is to deny any knowledge of the living God, the one true God who sent his Son. The charge that they bring is a very serious charge. What do they accuse him of? Well, of making himself equal with God. Verse 18 tells us, For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. It's a capital offense, they're saying, to do what you've done. Not only are you breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling him God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is, of course, a serious crime. It's a capital offense. Just trying to be equal with God is a major problem in the Scriptures. What's the thing that Adam and Eve did wrong? Well, they desired to be like God. And so all sin, we could say, 
as a result of this desire to be like God. Well, Jesus has gone beyond that to claim to be God. And again, that's a serious offense. In the Bible, that's something that is a capital offense. Um, I was in the Liverpool train station with a, uh, a friend not too long ago, and there was a big stand put up by the Mormons. And so this friend of mine from Iraq and I were having a conversation with these guys, and where it sort of culminated was with them saying, you become God. Uh, through your relationship with Jesus and the Book of Mormon and the truth was revealed there, you become God. And my friend from Iraq said uh, at that point very decisively, no, that's the first sin to think that you can be like God. That's the cause of all sin to think that you can be like God. In our humanity, we will never be like God. But Jesus here is making himself out to be God. And if they hear that, that, that statement correctly, well, they have to respond to it. And I think we too need to respond to it. So how does Jesus respond? Well, in verses 19 to 30, Jesus answers the charges. And in answering the charges, Jesus proves his divine identity. In answering the charges, Jesus proves his divine identity. Now, I've tried to move quickly through through the events of this passage because this is where John is trying to take us. He's trying to get us to hear and to assess Jesus' claims to see if they're true. And if they are, to respond correctly to what Jesus says. John himself has written these things. He tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31. He's written these things so that you'll believe and in believing have eternal life. That is to say, we need to believe rightly in Jesus so that we can have eternal life. Well, Jesus is being presented to us, and the question that that, that um, we're confronted with is, how will Jesus respond to these charges that are being brought against him? How does Jesus prove his divine identity? So, there are three big things that uh, I think it's worth looking at. And the first one is this. Well, big issue number one. Jesus is God but not in the way they thought. In other words, is he making himself equal with God? And to that we have to say, well, yes, but there's more to the story. First of all, Jesus does what the Father does. Look what he says starting in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only... Uh, He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does, and He'll show Him even greater works than these. It's like Father, like Son. The Father is... Well, the Son is imitating the profession of the parent. Uh, That's the way it was in the ancient world. Uh, My grandfather drove a truck when he was a young man, and later on he came to own a petrol station. My father could fix just about anything. I can put together a piece of Ikea furniture. Um, it's often little more than a coincidence these days if somebody does the same profession as what their, their father does. But that isn't the world Jesus is uh, speaking into. They would have immediately grasped the, grasped the significance of this father-son connection that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is intimately connected with the father, and he does what he sees his father doing, as sons in the ancient world did. They did what their fathers uh, were doing. And so he's saying, well, yes, there is this connection, this intimate relationship between me and my father, and I do those things which my father does as well. 
On the other hand, in claiming that he sees what the Father is doing, he's also announcing his subordination. He's obedient within what we would call a Trinitarian relationship. The Jews that he debates with are concerned about, well, monotheism. There is only one God. God is a unity. God is a singularity. So what Jesus is trying to show them is, well, the second thing is this. He is not a separate God, a competing deity with his own separate purposes. He and the Father are one. So closely are they interrelated that it's correct to say there's only one God, despite there being these distinct persons. And so Jesus is trying to give us a sense of what it is for them to exist uh, within the Trinity. And the challenge then is this. How do they imagine a person standing in front of them, dressed more or less like everybody else in the crowd, with the same dust on his sandals, eating the same food that they would have eaten, having the same basic needs, and yet claiming to be God himself? It doesn't take much imagination to see how they're in this incredibly difficult situation, at least naturally speaking. Only by God's grace and the work of the Spirit in our lives can we come to grips with the deity of the Lord Jesus. How, how do we grasp it ourselves? How much harder for them, I think, in that situation to come to terms with it. And maybe we think, well, if we'd been back there, we would have understood these things. We would have got this one right. But of course, that's an assertion without any evidence to back it up. We are in a better position. We are favored by God in that we have this record of his completed work. And we have the spirit of God within us to lead us into the truth. But here they are confronted with this man who is making himself equal with God. And they have to respond to that just like we have to respond to that. Well, so the first thing Jesus says in in his defense is that, well, he does what the Father does. The second thing that he says, uh, it's in verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The defining activities of God are, are what? What would you say they are? Well, it's to give life, to stand at the beginning of time, you might say, as the living one. And it's to stand at the end of time as the judge of life. Jesus is at the beginning. Jesus is at the end, just as God is at the beginning at the end. That's what it is to be God in a biblical worldview. Uh, This is unique, by the way. Other religions don't talk about a beginning and end. Only those that arise from the Bible talk about the beginning or an end in any meaningful way. Jesus is claiming that he stands at the end of time and judges all people. Do you think he's backing down from the charge being brought against him? You're making yourself equal with God? Well, yeah, I'm the one who would judge all of life at the end. He's not backing down at all. So, big issue number two is this. If uh, the big issue number one is Jesus is God, but not quite in the way they thought. Big, big issue number two is Jesus controls life and judgment. Jesus goes on to expand on that statement in verse 22 that God has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Um, part of that expansion is to say, well, what kind of Son? So let's read uh, verses 24 to 27 together. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words... And believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming, and has now come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. So, Jesus talks about himself with three different uh, descriptors in this passage. In verse 25, he refers to himself as the Son of God. There is the mighty king who is coming, the Christ, we might say, who is in line with David, the Messiah. The New Testament speaks regularly of the Son of God, comma, the King of Israel. Son of God is a messianic title. In seven, uh, several places in the scriptures, it even alternates between Son of God and Messiah language. That is, Son of God isn't primarily about being God's child, as much as it's about the status of the anointed one, the appointed one who will carry out God's purposes on earth. In the Bible, uh, well, a number of people uh, are described as son of God. Adam, Israel, the angels, the kings of Israel, and Jesus. And what do they have in common? They are the means by which God rules on earth, the way God manifests his rule and authority on earth. And so when Jesus says in verse 25 that they will hear the voice of the Son of God, he's talking about the, the, the anointed one that God sends to accomplish his purposes as the powerful Messiah who is so powerful that he will even raise the dead because he's the Son of God. But then in verse 26 he changes. And he says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted, look what he says, the Son also to have life in himself. One thing you won't see in scripture is Son of God and Father set side by side. The Father and the Son relate to each other because Son, as Jesus speaks of it, is a, is a relational reality. Jesus is the Son with respect to the Father. And so it's distinct from the Son of God language, and it's profoundly meaningful. He's not backing down from the charge, you've made yourself equal with God. Yeah, I am the Son, and He is my Father. I am the Son of God, the anointed King who has come. I'm both of those things, but He's not even done yet. Verse 27, He's given Him authority to judge because He is, well, here's the third Son, do you see it? He is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, what's that? Well, in Daniel 7, there's this incredible picture set up for us. The books are open, the thrones are set up, the dead are brought to life, and the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days. It's the classic biblical judgment scene. And Jesus is now claiming that He is the Son of Man, the one who will judge all of humanity at the end of time. And so He is the Son of God, He is the Son, and He is the Son of Man. And He has authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Judgment is coming. What is your greatest need? Big issue number three, and there are only three. Uh, Big issue number three is that Jesus' judgment is true and fair. Jesus says in verse 30, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. 
And my judgment is just, for I seek not to praise myself, but him who sent me. That is to say, um, I judge in accordance with what I hear. I hear the Father's voice. My judgment is in accordance with reality, and therefore my judgment is just. And secondly, it is not to please myself. One of the problems that Jesus keeps pointing to is you make judgments to please yourself. He keeps saying that back to the Jews. But he says, my judgment isn't to please myself. Our ideal of um, justice is, well, it's a blindfolded woman, isn't it? Holding a set of scales. And this is intended to convey that justice doesn't really pick the winners and losers. It doesn't relate to people based on status, which would have been the case in virtually any other system of justice in the ancient world. Until, well, the Old Testament comes along and says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, you know, you knock out the tooth of the king, it's going to cost you a whole lot more than a tooth. You with me on that? The biblical view of justice changes that. No, it doesn't matter a person's status. You knock out a tooth, the price you pay is a tooth. You knock out an eye. Well, that's totally foreign to the ancient world. And Jesus is working within that reality, within a biblical reality that says justice and judgment is supposed to be fair. It's supposed to be based on reality, not on who you are in terms of status. And so Jesus is speaking to them about what true justice is. And when you say that it's based on what I hear and it's not to please myself, basically what he's saying is there will be no bribes and there will be no power plays when judgment comes along. Do you think you can bribe God? Jesus is saying you can't. You will stand before him in judgment one day and there will be no bribe that you can offer. And there will be no power play that you can engage in because Jesus will judge justly. But as much as Jesus is, in a sense, trying to define notions of justice, he's really making a far bigger claim. He's been accused here of making himself equal with God. Now, his answer doesn't really boil down to something that we can fit onto a bumper sticker, so we shouldn't oversimplify this. But his ultimate point is this. I will judge humanity at the end of time. I'll be just and true, but ultimately the point is this. It's me that the whole world is going to have to answer to. In terms of claims to be God, that sounds to me like a loud and clear yes. And it sounds like something that demands a response from every one of us. So what should we say in conclusion? Well, I want to go back to that. What is our greatest need? Um, what are our basic human needs? Well, I put a list together. And here's my list. Food, water, love, security, hope, and status. Food, water, love, security, hope, and status. Um, as I look at that list, I'm reminded that Jesus is the bread of life. John 6, where he talks about himself directly as food. He is the living water. John 4. Jesus provides the security of a home in heaven, John 14. And the hope of resurrection life, John 11. And standing before God on the day of judgment, John chapter 3. And this is true because he gives us the right to become children of God, John 1.12. In him, and only in him, our greatest needs intersect with the person who alone is able to meet those needs. So let me encourage you today, spend time with him. Get to know Jesus in such a way that your trust in him is built up. And to recognize 
that when it comes to what matters, Jesus alone can take care of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed your Son to us in the person of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we see his, uh, his capacity, his ability to give life, and we also see his, uh, the reality of him being the judge at the end. And so we pray that you would uh, help us appropriately feel the weight of this, even perhaps the threat of this, but also the hope that we have in this, that Jesus is our judge, the one who claims to be our friend and is even described as our brother, is our judge. And so we pray that you would strengthen our faith and that you would build our relationship uh, uh, with you and with the Lord Jesus so that we can stand before you on that day, not in our own uh, righteousness or on our own uh, status, but because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We thank you for that work. We pray this in his name. Amen.